So we got somebody here today. There's somebody who has made the mistake of regularly listening to the show. <laughs> and um, he's got some problems with me. And in the sake of uh, getting, a, you know, kind of a diversity of voices on our right. podcast, we found another white guy with facial hair yes. to come and talk to us today. <laughs> We're going right off the farm. That's right. Uh, so he's, I've been saying some things. I, I, we're an off the cuff kind of show here. We say it how we see it. Uh, you know, sometimes people agree, sometimes they disagree. So we got somebody on here who disagrees with at least some of the things that we've been saying. We're going to try to get to the bottom of that today. So Kyle, Kyle Jackson, Kyle Jackson, what, you want to introduce yourself and, uh, explain what exactly your fucking problem with me is, bro. <laughs> yeah. Explain what yourself. <laughs> I've been uh, enjoying sitting in on all of your conversations over the past year. So, uh, by that, champing at the bit, as they say, to uh, to jump in. And I think a lot of your conversations recently about colorblindness, uh, Stalinism, and uh, or sort of intersectionality as uh, you know a fundamental distortion uh, of a way to conduct social analysis. And then, in the context of your conversation last week about you know, sort of an obsessive fixation on race. You cited the 1619 Project as a uh, example of a hyper-focus on race leading to a misinterpretation of history. And as someone who is currently studying history, uh, I'm at UC Berkeley uh, working on a PhD that I'll maybe finish someday. I The belly of the beast. <laughs> yes, I, you know, I feel a little bit, obliged to defend um, this evolving academic and non-academic alternative lens to view American history through. Specifically, the 1619 Project has been such a hotbed issue in both historical circles and the wider public and in politics. Some people might have heard about the fact that Donald we, Trump was so outraged that he- Can we give a primer on it? Sorry to yeah, interrupt yeah, you. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, either one of you guys. I don't really know what it is. I, uh, I didn't know what it was until recently, so yeah. Basically, the 1619 Project is a project of the New York Times Magazine that was spearheaded by one of their journalists, Nicole Hannah-Jones. It was conceived to mark the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans to the British colonies in North America. And so the sort of provocative idea at the heart of it was what if we think of the founding date of America as, or the United States of America as 1619, how will this fundamentally change how we look at American, the evolution of American history, politics and culture, finance, et cetera, by placing slavery and black struggle at the center of our analysis. Mm. And so it's an interdisciplinary collaborative magazine that has poets and journalists and historians and artists and various intellectuals, all doing sort of short form essays and poems and things of that nature, uh, reflecting on this central theme in various uh, topics. And then it was expanded into a larger curriculum that uh, teachers could get materials for their classes. It became like a podcast series. Um, so it was you know, explicitly framed as a way of engaging in public history. It's recentering. I, I'm actually like, don't know some of these hot button words. Right. Is this, would this be a, an example of recentering? Because it's okay. So it's not, we'll get into the controversy of the thing in a minute, but in my very bird's eye flowery view, like the attempt here is to 
combat or not explicitly even to maybe like replace, but it is kind of a way of criticizing and doing a positive uh, new analysis of what they interpret as a white uh, imperialist historically rooted story about the history of America, or, or are they just trying to put an alternative lens on it? Is like an implicit in it hostility towards traditional historical, you know, analysis of America or? Anyway. I would say, I would say no. It's really more the latter of what you described. It's an alternative approach, not necessarily a paradigm shift. That's not what it's proposing, right? It's, it's, it's proposing an alternative approach, but it's reflecting a paradigm shift that has already happened in the scholarship. And I think that is what's unsettling for a lot of people is because that paradigm shift that has already occurred many generations ago in the historical scholarship has not been adequately conveyed to public imagination and understanding of history. So the broader public, uh, especially people who are really invested with some of the more jingoistic or patriotic or race neutral at its sort of most, uh, to be generous, uh, visions of history, or ones that emphasize uh, common progress towards our founding principles, quote unquote, that that sort of hegemonic view of history is worthy of being challenged and upended, but this is just one approach that you might take. And well, uh, so let me let me jump in there for just a second, because you said that the paradigm shift has already taken place in the scholarship. Now, I don't know exactly what you're referring to as the old paradigm, but I mean, as you know, there are eminent scholars who disagree with the fundamental approach of the 1619 project. That doesn't mean they're right, but there are Can really... Can you explain the, the criticism? B- before we... Okay. I, I, I want to let Kyle continue fleshing it out, but there, there's, you know, big names have been interviewed by the World Socialist website, uh, sort of Trotskyist website, uh, like James Oakes, James McPherson, Gordon Wood. These are really big names, and they don't agree with Nicole Hannah-Jones on a lot of stuff. She is the author of right. the 1619 Project. No, she is one of the authors. She happened the, the creator. Project and wrote the introductory essay, but a lot of people have extrapolated the views of one journalist who's not a historian to represent uh, the entirety of the ideology behind the project, which is a distortion in and of itself, but please go on. But she won a Pulitzer for this, so people are, people are gonna get spicy about that. My only point here right now is that it's, if there's been a paradigm shift in the scholarship, as you said, do you think it's been a shift all the way towards what the 1619 Project is now saying to the point where the scholarship would now agree with the sentiment that 1619 is the true founding of the country? That that sort of idea? That that's already think, happened? Yeah. No, it's a fair point, but there's a few things that have to be considered. First of all, those eminent scholars are of the older generation. They're older white scholars with a deep investment in the revolutionary period and a very traditional vision of the founding fathers and the constitution being at the heart of US history, which I would say a large plurality at least of contemporary and up and coming and sort of cutting edge scholars would fundamentally not emphasize. They would try to, I think, it's much more the norm these days for scholars who are really surveying the historiographical landscape to have a much broader vision of what were the really important factors that have shaped American history. And that shift that has occurred has largely centered around recognizing the importance of slavery, capitalism, 
and the expropriation of indigenous land resources and the devastation of indigenous peoples. And that those sort of paradigm shifts in the scholarship since like the 1960s, they have not fully replaced and supplanted and particularly in sort of the most popular scholarship overtaken the James McPherson's and the Gordon Woods who continue to write books about John Adams and you know the, the, the Constitutional Convention and continue to be you know quote unquote esteemed scholars but the vast majority of people getting PhDs, teaching American history courses, writing cutting edge scholarship, publishing books, they fundamentally tend to be more in line with the uh, basic sort of essence of the 1619 project, which is that slavery and black struggle and racial politics are fundamental undergirding uh, aspects of every single aspect of early American history. And that to elude or to elide sort of ignore or downplay those elements from the quote unquote main storyline of the rise and formation of what would become the US federal government, that that is a fundamental distortion that produces a myopic view of American history and limits our ability to see what was actually going on. So it's not about like some sort of restorative justice or we need to uncover these unheard voices that have been left out of the historical record. It's without including all of these fundamental aspects and considering the role of slavery and race in them, you're going to have broad misconceptions about American history. Yeah, isn't there a, still a danger in encapsulating like a whole whole history in this ideological motivation or to just like wrap the whole thing up and yeah but i think that's one of the reasons that the sort of specific format of the magazine itself is emblematic of such a cool approach to me because it's just giving you different slices it's giving you an overview of how accounting and uh business management techniques have their origins in the plantation system. It gives you a slice of how the insurance industry and modern finance emerged out of slavery. It gives you a slice of how the sort of epigenetic and long-term health impacts and demographic impacts of slavery that sort of connect to modern day consumption uh, patterns and health problems. Like it's giving you all these different ways that we currently, when we think about what's going on in the world or when people study current events and sociology and politics, you know, they look at these things through a racialized lens based on an understanding that a longer history undergirds a lot of these broader phenomena. And so what this magazine article is telling us to do is when you're looking into those deeper histories, go all the way back and see how this all connects to the history of race and slavery in the Americas, which well, I think is, I fundamentally do agree with. Yeah. And I, but I can also, from a distance, again, understand the criticism. That, I mean, there's also examples of other bad things that happen in society that like technology has been. IBM, I think, had something to do with uh, the Holocaust and early computing accounting. You know, we're talking about accounting, computerized accounting, from what I understand, you know, was a thing that was happening in the Holocaust. So it's not, there, there may be examples of slavery not even being the only, it might be one of a set. There's a lot of innovation that happens over some fucked up shit in the history of the world. But I guess trepidation here, I think, is that uh, you don't want to paint over everything with one color, one interpretation. So it's not like, because you would be giving the audience the impression that all of accounting was created to uh, create slavery. Is that one of the... They no, I mean, the... The piece on that is actually by one of my professors and mentors here at Berkeley, who I did like an exam field with and stuff, Caitlin Rosenthal, whose book called Accounting for Slavery. And it's just basically about how modern accounting 
practices in terms of just how they kept uh, spreadsheets and stuff. And a lot of the sort of management techniques associated with accounting and modern management evolved out of the plantation system. So and it's the same with like the insurance industry. Like, yes, you can say that the insurance industry did not solely evolve to facilitate the business of slavery, but that was the largest impetus for its evolution. And it undergirded the fundamental capital accumulation of many of what are now still the largest insurance companies in the world. And same with some of the banks, you know? So like, it's not that much of a stretch. Like that's, I think one of the problems I have with the opposition to the 1619 project is that people are trying to point out like empirical errors, quote unquote, but a lot of them are not empirical errors. It's just a matter of how far I think you're able to expand your field of analysis to understand that like, okay, you can say cotton exports are only 10% of the US economy in the 19th century, but the ripple effects, the tendrils of slavery run so deep into every single industry. They're a driver of American quote unquote westward expansion. They're a driver of the you know, development of all these port cities around the Circum-Caribbean. The expropriation of native labor and native slavery is the fundamental factor in extracting all the silver and gold from the new world. Forced labor and slavery is at the heart of, if you want to say, okay, there's a lot of things in the 20th century and things in Europe and things in Asia and things wherever else that don't apply to the history of slavery and slavery isn't at the center of like, I understand. But if you want to talk about what has driven the history of the Americas, at least from the 16th century to the end of the 19th century, slavery and emancipation have to be very near to the center of basically every story you tell, or at least every story you have to tell, you have to be aware of how slavery is impacting the conversations, impacting the geopolitical landscape and impacting the economic landscape upon which history happens. The kind of way that I would initially interpret something like this is that it's a little bit of the uh, tail wagging the dog going on. Like there's a kind of cynical uh, thing that this is kind of like academics meeting their audience where they're at. And now they're trying to do academic work to keep, isn't to explain, the, wait, wait, like, I, to, to explain America and the history it's in racialized and in a racial term is this really sexy thing that gets a lot of readers and a lot of people motivated to be interested in your work and what you're saying. There's the worry about confirmation bias there. We're doing history for the audience now. Isn't there a danger there with, oh, this is popular, people like it, people like this way of doing the story, and then along the way we lose reality. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. But what I would say is the way it's usually framed is the opposite, right? It's that academics are coming up with these supposedly radical interpretations of history, and then they are pushing, foisting, or at least this is the right wing interpretation, right? That they are foisting these ideas upon our nation's unsuspecting undergraduates, and that it's the dog wagging the tail, right? It's the, and that's why I say that there's been a paradigm shift in the in the scholarship, I kind of think that the culture and the public perception is catching up. Now, the general population has a hard time with nuance, and that's why scholarship is important, and that's why academics engaging in this interdisciplinary thing with people who are non-academics, I think is a positive step, because it's how can we translate these fundamental, what I consider, and I think much of the academy would consider to be fundamental historical truths, how do we sort of interpret this and put this into a lens and a language, a conversation that people can relate to and understand while also exposing them to the latest 
innovations and scholarship, which is we've traced all of these things and figured out these links are real. Now, I want to ask, partly building on my previous point, none of us here, I don't think, are Stephen Miller fans. We're not. Speak for yourself. <laughs> um, maybe Corey is, but uh, none of us here think that slavery didn't matter to American history. None of us here believe in the uh, school children storybook version of American history. I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge slavery is crucial to talk about. Absolutely. Ding, ding, ding. What a when you're big talking day about for you. <laughs> <laughs> the history. I've never denied that. I've, I've talked about slavery a bunch on the so show. so proud of you. Uh, a couple things. I don't know how revolutionary that is, certainly among people on the left. And and by the way, I think most of uh, or a good number of the scholars that I, I mentioned and who were interviewed by the, the WSWS, McPherson and, and Oaks, for example, I, they're not crude, you know, jingoists either. I mean, that we should explain quickly to the audience that Trump and his people jumped on this. Absolutely, yeah. very quickly and politicized it and they created uh in response to this the 1776 commission or whatever which was supposed to be like no we're proud of our country and right which has self-hating these self-hating mixed race new york times journalists which has a whole turns into cucks whole host of problems i think we can all agree that just uh even beyond the the issues with slavery just like very weird definitions of communism and fascism and all kinds of ridiculous stuff so none of us agree with that approach so one thing i want to ask though is like how this notion that slavery and settler colonialism and the genocide of indigenous peoples is central to the development of capitalism. That was something that was recognized in Marx. Uh, Marx talks about primitive accumulation. He talks about the the natives entombed in, in the silver mines of Peru being central to the accumulation of capital in Western Europe. That's been a common thing to talk about on the left for a long time, going back to a bunch of old dead white guys in the 19th century even. I think maybe the disagreement comes about how we conceive of slavery. I think the historical materialist approach is to conceive of slavery as fundamentally a relation of production, a labor relation. The racist aspect of slavery, the the aspect of racial ideology is part of the superstructure. It's meant to justify and legitimize the labor relation. In the words of Barbara and Karen Fields that I've quoted on the show before in their book Racecraft, and I'm paraphrasing here, but there's this this view among some historians that slavery is at bottom about white people dominating black people and not about growing cotton, sugar, tobacco, and rice. The view of, of myself and this show broadly, I, I don't speak for Corey, but I think he agrees with this, is that it's the latter. It, it was fundamentally about production. So would you disagree with that? No, not at all. I mean, where the next level of analysis has to go, regardless of whether or not that is the fundamental relation, the impact and lingering resonance of racial ideology is undeniable and incredibly profound. So whether or not it's rooted in uh, the exploitation of the managerial class and the owners of capital, and it's used to exploit and divide labor and, and all of these things, which I fundamentally agree with, the sort of the next step and where I think sort of black radical Marxists have taken the conversation a lot further and where black studies comes in and why I think this interdisciplinary 1619 project is a good enhancement to traditional historiography is that it includes a much more sophisticated analysis of 
race as well as being something that exists in the abstract and in the concrete. It is not something that is merely tangential to the larger questions of class struggle. It's something that structures life and history in the past and present and future of the Americas, especially. I, I think, yeah, I remember trying to make a point like that to Matt once in a way. I was telling Matt whether or not you use race to interpret the way you talk about history, it exists as a construct for so many fucking people that it exists. And the fact that so many people, maybe not the people in power, not maybe not the people fundamentally who change history, but the fact that there's a space where people do think in racialized essential ways makes that a thing that exists and does move things. It's like a pocket of reality, a big one that you have to swallow whole and, and contain within your understanding of the world. Because even if something is a fallacy, if people are operating off of it as if the fallacy is there, then there's a certain level of reality to the fallacy. Whether or not you believe in a Christian God or Jesus or Muhammad, these there's millions of people acting as if these stories are true. And that in turn, in a reverse way, creates the reality, whether you like it or not, or whether you disagree with it. If millions of people thought that uh, I didn't have a left hand, then I would have to acknowledge on some level that I don't have a left hand. Does that make sense? You, you would have to acknowledge that everybody... What was your example again? That you didn't have a left hand? Did you... That was probably probably one of the worst examples that I've ever come up with. I mean, you would have to acknowledge if you didn't if you if everybody thinks you don't have a left hand. That was at the yeah. You know, you, you have to acknowledge that everybody thinks you don't have a left hand, and that you you would have to go about. And there's a your, huge pocket of reality that functions as if I don't have a left hand. As and if you have you have to account for that reality in some way. Uh, yeah, it, it's as if you don't have a left hand. It's not that you don't actually well, have a left hand. Yeah, that's the other thing. That's the way I want to go. That is my criticism with this kind of stuff. I would say that there are truths in the world. I'm not into the whole relativistic, it's just interpretation. That's the only thing. I even believe that there are absolute truths in terms of moral shit. I don't care what kind of sun god you pray to. If you're cutting off women's clitorises, that's a bad thing. You know, I don't think it makes me a thank imperialist you, you, to say that, but whatever. Uh, don't kink you know. shame, bro. <laughs> very very controversial uh, stuff to there there does seem to be that stuff in in academia where it's, oh we can't touch or criticize other cultures or whatever everything is relative and that's just kind of yeah there was just this this uh professor who got in trouble for criticizing hinduism or hindutva the the extremist right-wing hindu nationalist ideology she said a bunch of stuff and not all of it i would agree with or think was the right way to say it but she's like getting attacked as like a Hindu phobe, and she's there. People are trying to deny her her tenure because she made various criticisms, and you can see this also with on academia people trying to shut down criticism of Zionism or the state of Israel. Uh, so this stuff, this kind of stuff, gets turned around on the left eventually. I agree with that. I mean, I I think I would. It's easy to sort of talk in abstractions. You want to talk specifics? I'm, I'm happy to. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's what I do. That's what I want. Yeah. You guys it's, talk. It's, um, it's easy <laughs> to talk like to say general stuff. Like I can say slavery and is fundamentally a labor relation and you can agree with that. And you can say that racial ideology matters and I can agree with that. And it all sort of stays at the level of abstraction. And But I feel like if that's all we're saying, 
then there's nothing to argue about. So what's an example? What's a concrete example of something where maybe something I said or Corey said or somebody uh, somebody else has said where we've gone wrong and, and you think that the source of the error is insufficient attention to race as a factor in history? Or is it just kind of the general feeling or the approach? I it, think like the way we come off. It doesn't well, have to be something we said on the show. It could be something somebody yeah. else has said. My objection is the dismissiveness that I see across the ideological spectrum from conservatives, liberals and leftists for analysis that foregrounds a deep engagement and understanding of race and the insights of black studies and the tendency among all three groups, leftists, certain sections of leftists, liberals and conservatives is to dismiss that as social justice warrior. You're just trying to be woke. Um, and I have a fundamental intellectual disagreement with that because I believe that while it is not the only lens to view history through, it is not the only method of analysis, it is not the only approach one can take, it is not an intellectual lightweight activity to do so. It is not- Do so you think it's at least a little bit excessive how much of that there is in the present? It's like we're at the apex of- Yeah, yeah, sure. Like it's popular. It's making, for, it's making up for the last 200 years of scholarship, you know? Mm. It's not selective in what it's analyzing. It's not selective, it's corrective, and it's reflective, if I can get on my poetry. Mm. You know, like yeah. it's trying to not necessarily take down the hegemonic ideology, because I think I wonder I wonder what some of these people might say about that. I think they might disagree yeah, yeah. with you on that. But I just think it's because to me and the people of our generation, the ideology isn't that hegemonic. Like you say, Matt, like we all sort of agree on a lot of these fundamental principles. But I'm saying even at the level of like this sort of broad public understanding of the importance of racism and black struggle, which has improved dramatically in the last several generations, still is largely lacking a much more sophisticated understanding of the particulars of history, including class struggle, including the importance of labor and the importance of communist organizing among black activists. And this sort of the radical tradition in black history is fundamental to understanding the leftist politics that people want to enact on Twitter and in the sort of woke media. You know, wait a minute, we might be the ones painting with a too broad of a brush here because they may not be the, the most amount of people. They may not be the people who have been at work at the 1619 Project, but I do know that there are people uh, who do believe tearing down the and replacing the imperialist history of the past. These people have to exist. I don't know how many of them there are. I don't know how many of them are actually the academics. I don't know if they're just people in the street, but there are people who want to like literally tear down the statues and then like literally tear down our imperialist white history, right? Do you, I'm not saying, do you know these people? Do you, do you believe they exist? I think careful reflection on the historical record is incompatible with holding deep reverence for the symbols of American imperialism. And so hmm. if, you, if you have actually engaged deeply with the history and the scholarship, you might not personally feel compelled to call for the tearing down of statues, but I find it very hard to not understand why people find such figures objectionable. Even like you guys were woke shaming uh, San Francisco for trying to cancel Abraham Lincoln, but it's an undeniable fact that he directly ordered genocidal exterminationist policies towards indigenous peoples. You can say that, oh, it was a different time and he did many other good things and there's that, but 
that objection is in the historical record. It is completely irrefutable. The same with Washington. The same with basically every. What happens? What happens after you cancel the? And what what does the canceling mean? To I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that historians cancel people or should can, cancel people. Yeah. Uh, historians are here to provide insight and truth and record so that people or school boards or people deciding to name a building or whatever can make decisions about who they want to venerate. It's the same with all these like building unnamings on campus here at Berkeley. You know, at first I felt kind of mixed feelings about it. I really did. I really did. And same with the monument stuff. Like I, but the more you learn about a lot of these people, the more obvious and blatant the record of their racism and intolerance and promotion of exterminationist policies becomes. And but what do you, how do you replace the symbol of Thomas Jefferson? And, and what symbol do you replace it with, especially if you're a group of people who have contempt and <laughs> for the nature of America or what? It, I mean, I don't want to sound like a fucking, but at that point, it's like, what the fuck are you doing here? Why don't you? Well, and I, you know, I also, like, you know, I think if we're talking about history, the victory of the Union over the, the slave owners rebellion in 1865 is a fundamental turning point, not just in American history, but in the history of the world. I don't try to analyze history moralistically, but I also think it was an incredible moral victory. In its result, it, not it's an attention. In, uh, well, I mean, we can talk about that. I mean, to talk about the symbols of America, I'm, I'm not a flag waver. I don't even have particular, like it doesn't upset me on a visceral level when somebody tears down a statue uh, even if I disagree with even if I disagree with tearing down that particular statue. So this is not like coming from a, a, a place of emotional investment in this, really. But I do think that it's important to recognize the Union and the Confederacy were not the same. And, and to speak of symbols, you know, Karl Marx, in writing his um, letter on behalf of, of the First International, the International Working Men's Association, to Abraham Lincoln, congratulating him on his election victory in 1864, uh, said, from the commencement of the titanic American strife, the working men of Europe understood instinctively that the star-spangled banner carried the destiny of their class, because they knew that this was a, a struggle for the, the liberation of labor. And so that... Um, Civil War? Yes. Absolutely. I don't know how the laboring class would uh, feel 10 years after the Civil War about that statement. But. Oh, oh, which laboring class? The the former slaves or the, the wage laborers in the North? What, which, what are you talking about exactly? Take your pick. I don't really know what the, they're the, about to argue the, about, that it was a, about to argue. Are you denying that it was a relative liberation? I mean, like... No, I'm just saying, if you're saying, <laughs> if you're trying to paint the Civil War as a noble victory for labor... How about the immiserated conditions for the laboring masses of the United States that unfold over the next 30 years? I didn't. Did I say at any point that that communism was achieved in 1865? No, um, it would have been great. But no, I, I'm saying that that it was a monumental step forward in the history of the world. There's nothing wrong with better in the words of Barack Obama. <laughs> better is good, right? I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure where you're coming from with this, but like, why is it more of a money? I mean, I understand its impact was transformative on the American economy, which is transformative of the global economy. But why is it more monumental than emancipation in the British West Indies 20 years earlier? I mean, it was it, fundamental to the development of the economy of the United States. If And in uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, they, they demanded their liberation before, before really? America, too. Yeah, my mom was just telling me about that. Wait, wait, wait. wait. 
were the Virgin Islands controlled by the United States then? Uh, no. That was the Danish. I'm just saying, if you're trying to say that this is a big revolutionary moment in world history, I mean, how about the Haitian Revolution? How about emancipation in the West Indies? I didn't say the Haitian Revolution wasn't, um, but the development of the economy of the United States as one of the central capitalist powers in the world, that's enormously important. That was a bad thing. (laughs) I didn't say it was a good orbit. I I think it's it's enormously important. The development of the proletarianization of the American laboring class it would not be possible black or white um without the abolition of slavery and without that like development of a working a a wage laboring class in the united states that changes the dynamic internationally fundamentally i guess sort of where i'm fundamentally sort of not on the wave with this line of thought is that like if we want to you know give plaudits to the union and everything for ending slavery and whatever can we also acknowledge that they accommodated slavery for the previous 75 years and that the partnership between northern supposedly anti-slavery sympathizing politicians and southern slaveholding the slaveocracy like that fundamental pr- partnership was the overarching I think I think we I think we said it ourselves like last one of the last episode is that you know, the main motivation, at least at the federal level, is just to keep the states together. They didn't give a shit necessarily about, you know, I, I'm not, not a I, would, I wouldn't even, I would never claim that Abraham Lincoln was motivated solely by, you know, freeing the slaves. And I think that's an important thing for people to know. But it's, it's also undeniable that the Republican Party was founded on opposition to slavery. Yeah, that, that yeah sure. You had this election in 1860 where Republicans won the White House and I believe the House, not the Senate, but the House of Representatives. And this was the first time in American history where you had a political party founded whose whose primary purpose was to, at the very least, limit slavery to the territories in which it already existed, which they believed would lead to the end of slavery, which, and we can talk about why they believe that, but they absolutely believe, and I think they were right, that if they succeeded in limiting slavery to the territories in which it currently existed, that that would eventually lead to the death of slavery. That slavery was like a shark that needed to keep swimming in order to survive. Yeah, and this is this is part of the whole broader discussion here is like the worry about essentializing race in terms of history has its own erasing process, ironic. And the attempt to, like you were saying yourself, like to compensate for 200 years of not talking about this, you can do the damage of painting over and thinking of as a block white Americans at that time who were, were all implicated on some kind of poetic, spiritual way in the process of slavery, which just is not true. Everything is complicated and everything has gradations inside of it. I mean, there uh, there were vicious, bloody battles in Kansas leading between white people uh, leading up to the Civil War. And of course, many of those white people were, you know, racists who didn't like slavery because they didn't want to be around black people or compete with black labor. Not denying that, but th- there's the notion that this was an, an entirely, um, which I've also heard from some people who call themselves Marxists, people who I don't think this is a huge tendency on the left, but there, there are some people who I think could fairly be called class reductionists, even if they're just isolated on the internet, who say that, oh yeah, the, the, the Civil War is entirely about keeping the union together, or, or they even like recapitulate lost cause kind of narratives about how it was all about tariffs or something. The Civil War happened, secession happened after 
the electoral victory of the Republican Party, which at its base, nobody denies, was a fundamentally anti-slavery party. Not everybody who supported the union, but the leadership of the union during the Civil War definitely wanted to see the end of slavery. And they were, of course, constrained by the, they had to keep the border states in the union. And there were various other factors weighing on the other side. But this notion that like the union was entirely cynical, I don't think holds up historically. Sure. And I don't think it's being advanced by historians at, at, at any major level. Well, it, it, it kind of sounded a little bit. Do you bit. think it's the 1619 Project dog whistles this shit a little bit? At least it was implicit. I don't know. I haven't read it, but. Um, no, but <laughs> to expand it out a little bit, if you, I like, I fundamentally, yeah, most of the things that you said there are pretty much for the most part, kind of sort of basically true. And if you want to build a money, wait, 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 <laughs> for the most part, kind of, sort of, you know, I think you, you, you well, tell us there. You can quibble here or there, but the, the larger point is if you want to build a monument or put Abraham Lincoln on a penny to reward his commitment to that struggle and his leadership in that crisis to achieve that result, fine by me. But I think it's perfectly acceptable to also say, well, I've read a lot of speeches of Abraham Lincoln in the period before the Civil War, and he seemed pretty much convinced of fundamental intellectual inferiority of African Americans. He was fully supportive of an initiative to repatriate Black people back to Africa, and that there's many other troubling aspects of his reign as commander-in-chief, including exterminatory policies in Indian territories, which should not be overlooked. And therefore, some people might not choose to venerate that figure. I'm not sure. saying that Look, well, one flat portrayal covers the broad spectrum of any American president because the American presidency is extremely complex. The United States is a country involved and embroiled in a lot of problems and a lot of geopolitical situations that we're not. Well, it's like it's like some people like kiss, you know, and some people like orchestra music and some people like tool and some people like the weekend or whatever. But yeah, it still has to exist. That's that's what I'm saying is like the romantic theme of this conversation for me is like different realities have to coexist. If you don't think Abraham Lincoln was an asshole for all these things, which is of course he is, then yeah, but fuck, do you care if someone else venerates him for certain specific and reasons. Let me, let me like, jump in here. Why do you have to ruin that for everybody else? L- let I me jump in. I don't actually think it's ruining anything. I mean, it doesn't ruin anything for me to people to, for people to talk about this. But let me let me bring up Frederick Douglass was an asshole in some ways. Frederick Douglass was a supporter of settler colonialism. He has he wanted to stuff. Bring him back to Africa. He was n- no, he not, was, not was for, he? no. Not for Corey. Just shut the fuck up for a second. <laughs> <laughs> just stop derailing me with Stuff that isn't true. Um, uh, Frederick Douglass said things about how he favorably compared civilized laboring African-Americans to the supposedly wild, savage Indians and said, how come white people uh, romanticize and uh, turn into some kind of noble symbol of the country, these, these savages who live in the forest, whereas we black Americans we, we live in cities and we farm and we work and we help build the country and we don't get credit for it. Uh, so Frederick Douglass had all kinds of fucked up shit to say. Um, so should we rename yeah, people in the 19th century had a race conscious view? But how many should we rename all the schools in the country that are named after Frederick Douglass? I don't know how many people died at the hands of Frederick Douglass's policies. He wasn't in charge. I mean, like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That matters. We'll put you in charge, Kyle, and see how many people you don't kill 
Right. I mean, that's like a, that's a different, I mean, if you were the president tomorrow, you would be responsible for killing people no matter what. I don't know, man. I think. (laughs) Are we not implicated in these ourselves? Aren't we uh, all responsible for the the death and the, yeah, I I don't amongst us. I don't think that these policies are, are the result of the, the moral depravity of the people running the state apparatus. I think that they're, they emerge from fundamental imperatives and so to say like Frederick Douglass- What's fundamental imperatives? More. Frederick Douglass or Abraham Lincoln? Wait, 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 wait what was it? Can you repeat who that? Who shapes those imperatives? Who shapes those policies? Sh- Is it Fre- Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington and uh, Tucson- Booker Lover- T. Washington, he was the one that wanted to go back to Africa. Tucson Louverture, yeah, that's a great example. Tucson Louverture instituted forced labor when he took over yeah, Haiti for a brief period in, in uh, and then and then Dossalin, uh after him uh, in the first Haitian Empire, they reinstituted forced labor. They, yeah, yeah, that's but that's a, a great example to me of why you can't flatten these historical figures into being heroes when he advocated extremely problematic, destructive policies that would have re-enslaved the Haitians and partnered with European monarchies. So it's the same. Wait, 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 who, who, wait, who, who, yeah, Louverture. And so, so, but Haiti still like recognizes Toussaint Louverture and Jacques Dessalines. But, but, but historians recognize the complexity and the nuance and the fact that he is not just a heroic figure. Sure. But do you think they they should tear down all the statues of Louverture or like uh, stop talking about him in general? No, I think there's room for all of these uh, ideas to exist, but I think just to sort of bring it full circle, what I and the 1619 Project are arguing is that it's important to provide these counter narratives in order to add the necessary complexity in most people's minds. For instance, I think one of the best history books ever written is C.L.R. James's biography of Toussaint Louverture, which is a pretty much self-consciously positive, heroic depiction of a leader of Black black liberation movement, the world's first and most successful. It's not the full story. Other historians have had to come in and add other supplemental details, but the virtue of that approach has resonated and shaped the entirety of Haitian studies afterwards in fundamentally good and positive ways. The same way that, you know, in, in your last podcast, Matt objected to this idea that uh, the Civil War be portrayed as a Black freedom struggle that was fundamentally swung by Black people self-emancipating, which has, well, you might object to my characterization of your characterization, but you were saying that you think that that becomes a reductive explanation of a much larger thing. But the fact that that argument has permeated into the mainstream interpretation of the Civil War is an important corrective to the original vision and hegemonic understanding of the civil war, which was that it was a war fought by white people to liberate black people from the start and throughout, which is not true. What I was objecting to there is more, um, and I'm not claiming accusing historians of doing this, but I was objecting to a sort of caricature that I think is kind of reflective in the Django Unchained in a lot of popular consciousness that not so not so much mischaracterizes the civil war but simply ignores it. So for example, when I what I said there in that characterization, I mentioned the general strike, what WB Du Bois called the general strike. I mentioned the black soldiers in the Union army. I have no objection to talking about how that stuff swung the civil war. Absolutely. What what I have an objection to is either ignoring that it happened or characterizing it entirely as a race struggle 
when it very clearly was not. It was a multiracial struggle against the slave-owning oligarchy by people of all races uh, from all regions of the country, including the South. That was what I was trying to get at. Yeah, and I feel that. And I think reasonable people can disagree about which storyline you emphasize or what you think is the most important explanatory power um, interpretation of various historical periods or events or whatever. But I think what I'm trying to get across, and especially what I think is the value of something like the 1619 Project, is to say that there is also value in expanding those frameworks and in taking firm and expansive and in many cases, more radical interpretations that can open up the conversation, that can shed light on new questions, that a an approach that is wedded to certain reverence to the established historiography can often, it, it can keep it out of view. If you're too worried about, I can't challenge these various aspects of how the Civil War is fundamentally understood, that may limit the way that you are able to have these kind of conversations. There have been literally over, you know, several million books written about the Civil War. I think there's room for people to advance different interpretations. What I object to is the um, the sort of dismissive attitude and the the feeling that this somehow makes the conversation worse to insert a racial analysis or to emphasize certain intersectionality as as a fundamental way of looking at certain problems. I think it can only enhance our analysis and make it more nuanced. If after breaking down every issue by issue, you decide, hey, it's more about trains than it was about, you know, black people <laughs> enemy lines. Fine. That's fine. But that's, at least a, funny, that's that. a funny example, because that is kind of like what the autistic mind would prefer. <laughs> <laughs> I want it to just be about trains. I don't want it to be about black people. Well, the whole people, not just not black people, just people in general. (laughs) People in general. Could you hypothetically conceive of the uh, possibility of taking it too far with a racialized, exciting narrative that lopsides? Because at the end of the day, there is a truth independently. That's my opinion. Some people might disagree with that. There are numbers that we can look at about the number of people who were killed during the civil, you know, and the people who participate, whatever individual like gripe we're having. There's a whole list, laundry list being created between the two of you about potential hotspots of disagreement. You could hypothetically imagine that you could be painting with too broad a brush uh, at, a, at a racial level uh, in your interpretation of history, right? Of course, and it happens all the time. You know, in many monographs try to advance one or various interpretations or arguments that have to do with a certain race or class or gender analysis. And sometimes you agree and you pick up with what they're putting down. And sometimes they make selective use of evidence and they cherry pick information and you're not convinced. But the idea that it's wrong or uh, reductive to even advance that those claims, I think I is, is mm-hmm. fundamentally mistaken and can, you know, it's, it's a similar to like when I hear leftists you know, object to identity politics or something without acknowledging that, you know, there can be certain advantages to taking different approaches to things. And so within the realm of sort of academic history, yes, it can tip in one direction or the other too far, absolutely. But the exercise I think is generative and productive. And even if that is just because it produces scholarship contrary to the thesis of an author that advances a particular interpretation. And sometimes I do see that, you know, like if you want to tell me that certain things are fundamentally about slavery that really aren't, then I have no problem with people being opposed to that, placing it at the heart of their analysis. But I think uh, starting the conversation is always a good thing. 
Nice. Uh, we can all agree that starting a conversation, that's what we're doing right now, the right? The proof is in the pudding, baby. So, like, we're having a conversation here. I think, I think beyond maybe specific disagreements, which I maybe want to get into a little bit about the American Revolution, and we've already talked about the Civil War, I think. But beyond that, I think there might be a more fundamental conceptual disagreement here. You've mentioned this term several times. Uh, the black radical tradition. And I think maybe this is an example where I would say that race is being used here in a way where we, we disagree about how it should be used fundamentally. That race is, for me, race is downstream. It's downstream from the forces of production, from class relations, from things like that. And this, this term, the black radical tradition, I feel it places race upstream. And let me explain why. So what exactly do you mean by the black radical tradition? There's a long history of people of African descent in this country, 400 years, all kinds of different historical periods that they're living in, different material conditions, different class positions, different ideologies, an incredibly diverse array of people who are engaging in all kinds of different political activity. This, this term, the black radical tradition, seems to me to be extremely reductive. It's it's a kind of race reductionist phrase. Uh, and l let me quote Adolf Reed, as I like to do on the show, in an article for Nonsite from 2019 called What Materialist Black Political History Actually Looks Like. And maybe I've quoted this before, but let me do it again. One of the things he says is, there is no singular transhistorical black liberation struggle or black freedom movement. And there never has been. Black Americans have engaged in many different forms of political expression in many different domains around many different issues, both those considered racial and not. They have engaged in race solidaristic formations and in close concert with others in class-based and multi-class alliances. As Cedric Johnson has argued forcefully, contemporary scholarly discussion reads black politics, the ethnic pluralist group politics articulated mainly since the 1960s, back anachronistically onto the varying and pragmatically grounded political expressions in which black Americans have engaged since emancipation, which he describes as black American political life. Political differentiation has been as common among black Americans as among all others. Moreover, issues bearing specifically on race or racial disparities have never exhausted or exclusively defined black Americans expressed political concerns. And this goes, I think, uh, to, you know, contemporary issues. There was a, a case in, um, and I don't remember all the details exactly, but there were instances of workers striking during the coronavirus pandemic about unsafe working conditions. And there were cases of, of wor workers who were almost entirely black doing this. And the media, including much of the progressive and left media, interpreted this almost exclusively as being about race and black liberation. And, and it was especially because it was happening around the same time as the George Floyd protests. But why isn't it just workers yeah. struggle? Like, does any like... Isn't, isn't part of liberation owning and participating in America and other contexts other than your own race? Isn't that part of what the nature of like, liberation like it's, is? It's like, you know, black workers aren't allowed to be workers. They're like everything that black workers right. do has to be interpreted through the, the lens of a struggle for racial equality. When it's not, a lot of times if you ask the people involved in these places, they, that's not what they foreground themselves. Yeah. Uh, so does, does that any of that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I don't disagree with a single thing that you just said or quoted from like that. I'm I'm with you 
like a monolithic vision of a black freedom struggle or black politics, black body politic. I, I'm not with that at all. But you uh, did you but, did use that that phrase. So what, I, what what do you mean by that exactly? Yes, allow me to clarify. The black radical tradition is referring to a specific thread of scholarship of black Marxists stretching from W.E.B. Du Bois up through all sorts of folks in the Caribbean, especially in the West Indies, like C.L.R. James, and all the way up through Sylvia Winter and Orlando Patterson and uh, Stuart Hall and these sort of people who engaged with Marxist scholarship in an extremely deep level or Trotskyist scholarship in an extremely deep level, but also had their world historical view and analysis filtered through the lens of they grew up in a post-colonial environment in the British West Indies and in London as Black intellectuals. And that the insights that they bring to class analysis an understanding of well, who are they to talk about being an African American? Th- this is this who is the another fuck thing. Are they? This is, this <laughs> a lot is of them have thing. also lived in the United States. Well, th- this know. is another thing that Reed mentions. Um, that Reed talks about C.L.R. James. It's completely um, different. Among others, he says neither Malcolm X, Franz Fanon, C.L.R. James, nor Stuart Hall can tell us anything strategically useful about the Black American political situation. Appeals to their putative wisdom stem from academic leftist romantic attachments and commitments to race reductionist politics. So bullshit. But the situation uh, well, you would argue that hold on. the situation a, he says he says James's time in the United States as I, James's time in the United States, as I have said, was on the political equivalent of a tourist visa. He was not enmeshed in black American politics and understood its internal and external dynamics in only an abstract formalist way. The same applies to Stuart Hall. So this is a I, I think maybe an example hold on let me finish. This is maybe an example of a kind of race reductionism, the idea that that there's a black Marxism that that somebody living in the Caribbean or in Africa can use to analyze the situation of black Americans is something I think that I think this is an example of what we disagree on. Yeah, I, I want to give a, I want to give my own personal example for fun because I want to talk about myself. But my mom from the Virgin Islands, which I'd like to bring up. We were talking about this recently. You know, there's not, that's part of what the process of the racism is. There was a lot of, in my uh, extended family, like trouble with internalized racism and confusion and about and it being a mixed race person. When we became part of the United States, uh, a lot of my mother's extended family, the men, you know, joined the military or whatnot, but there was all this confusion. Should they be put in a black outfit or should they be put, some of them, like, like my grandfather, he applied to go to the military through Puerto Rico, which was better because you were white if you were in Puerto Rico, but you were black if you were recruited in the military from <laughs> St. Croix. Makes no fucking sense. I mean, you know, this is systematic racism. Anyway, my uncle drank himself to death because he thought he was white. Anyway, th- there's no analog to like the African-American experience down there, even though, you know, the U.S. was treating them as if they were and trying to funnel them into this, these simplified it might not be an analog, but that doesn't mean there aren't isn't going to be resonance and that it, it's going to prevent crucial insights that perhaps, you know, a lot of times foreign observers are able to have more astute insights about the United States or, a, you know, a, a country from which they're not b- based in or from. And so I, I guess what I'm a little bit frustrated with from you, Matt, is that it sounds like you basically object to the premise of Black studies, which I fundamentally disagree with. Reading African-American history, reading scholarship in this Black radical tradition, for me, 
has fundamentally changed how I look at many different aspects of history. And so I think that there is something to be gained from that approach. And if you want to say their insights aren't any more valuable because they're black or uh, that their focus on race somehow is distorting or simplifying or flattening their vision of history. Okay, that's your opinion. But I mean, have you, I don't want to be like that grad student dude who's like, have you read Fanon? Have you read CLRJ? Don't you think, have you? Don't you think like in the same way the military was flattening their understanding of black people and white people in the way that they were recruiting in my but grandparents' time. Don't you don't you think that the, there's that there could be a uh, intellectual equivalent of flattening the reality by especially even just the name black studies? I mean, we can have we should get to the core of the argument is like some people believe that race is a real thing. Like this is what I was trying to talk about earlier, which is isn't there a risk in like even implying that race exists? You know, let's just get to the heart of it. Like I don't think that it's actually real. And that's a way of talking about the ridiculousness. And and my experience, which I will center as a like not looking mixed race person, but a person who grew up uh, with a mixed race mother and I have people around and, and goes to a place with a lot of people who are like half Danish, half black. It makes the whole race thing seem silly to me on some yeah. level. And I don't fundamentally believe in it. And so that's the danger in like establishing systems and uh, ways of studying the world. It's almost like you're creating a monument in response to the racism that you experienced to combat the racism that in itself is coded with the racism of the fucking superstructure of racism. And like, that's not necessarily a good monument to build either don't you don't you think you could make that argument that the best monument is to leave this bullshit all behind and let let me the dust of the history from whence it came let me respond directly to some of the stuff kyle's just said i don't object it depends on what you mean by black studies i don't object to talking about the history of black americans specifically when you're talking about american history i don't i don't object to Talking about that, Adolf, I mean, the the title of this piece I'm reading from by Adolf Fried is called What Materialist Black Political History Actually Looks Like. He's talking about black political history. Is he black? Yes. Yeah, that's Adolf Fried is black. It shouldn't matter, but I mean, it, it does matter in, in some ways. Uh, but with regard to the specific points he's making, the truth doesn't ma- doesn't depend on whether he's black or not. Uh, but Adolf Reed is, is of course black, and he's he's read. I've I've read some. I'm not an expert on James or Fanon or Hall. I've read some of the stuff. These and but Reed has read plenty of it. I don't object to talking about that. What I object to is this notion that there is some kind of transgeographical, transhistorical black race, and being a part of that race somehow gives you an insight into the conditions of people living perhaps on the other side of the world who you've also designated to be a part of that race. That's what I object to. If that's what you mean by black studies, then I totally object to black studies. Well, it sounds like your particular objection is to the conception of the African diaspora being a central organizing principle or something that has scholarly significance. But that is not an assertion of a trans-historical, trans-geographic universalism. That's advancing an argument about a specific event, the transatlantic slave trade, producing a particular political and cultural and social geography in the Americas. And that by looking at the connections between various parts and across that, the period of time under which that long major event took place, 
that connecting various stories and threads and seeing how they relate to one another is a useful way of looking at one of the major forces in world history. So I don't, I mean, if you object to that, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Well, but, but just to, to, to return a little bit to what Corey was saying about sort of, you know, isn't there a risk of sort of re-establishing the monolithic uh, importance of race by talking about it constantly? I think it's a great question. And it's the kind of thing that black studies engages with at a much more sophisticated level than any other history. Like, and that's exactly why it's an important threat of thought. And like the people who are, uh, a lot of the thinkers and intellectuals who have done the most, in my opinion, sort of productive philosophical work around what is the human, what is race, what is this and that, a lot of that has come out of the black intellectual radical tradition. I highly recommend Sylvia Winter if you've never checked her out, she's crazy, <laughs> crazy. Okay. Um... My, my, my point is, you can say that, you know, okay, I've read a couple of CLR James books and this is all talking about some like West Indian post-colonial moment that no longer really has great relevance to me or to black Americans or the struggle of uh, the continent of Africa. And I totally buy that. But I think there's also other ways to look at that scholarship, which is you can read it and you can uh, find and connect other resonances to other stories and to more modern time. The way CLR James talks about racial solidarity or class conflict or whatever is informed by a 1930s vision of Trotskyism. Someone writing about it in 2018 from the black studies uh, sort of scholarship that's going on right now is gonna talk about it in a fundamentally different and much more sophisticated way, frankly. Well, so I think the notion of a diaspora to the extent that you can relate it materially back to, to the extent that the African diaspora is a result of the transatlantic slave trade, that you, if you can relate that back to a material foundation in which all of these different groups of people uh, arrived where they were in a specific labor relation and how that characterizes that, then yeah, you can talk about a African diaspora. Oh, you mean foregrounding the history of slavery? <laughs> yeah. I'm in. I, none of us have, have uh, disagreed with, I mean, we're all talking about slavery here. I'm, the, 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 I'm what, very close to erasing it from my consciousness and memory. I'm, I've almost fully achieved the the wiping it out. Well, you're you're uh, you're you're black. You you belong to from the from a black trans historical black race from a, from and a place of uh, so I can't criticize you for saying I am that. erasing yes. Uh, but I so it's not my place to to criticize Corey here. So so a couple of things I would say is that you know that's people are talking more than just about the. The African diaspora. I mean, it, it's also an interesting question. What about the the East African slave trade and and black people in Iraq? And is that the same sort of thing? That that wasn't the same kind of. Do Asian people slave each other? Yeah, there's slavery all over the history, all over the world. But I love the, it when I ask a naive question to two historians and they I'm not give sorry, me a look but, of. But there's there's black people in India. There's black people who you know. And there's Indian people in Jamaica. Yeah, right. British Empire transported people all around the world but there, there's uh there's an, cannabis with them that's right um so so i and this is a question i don't really know the answer to exactly but uh i wonder if because in some ways the east african slave trade was different materially than the atlantic slave trade it didn't it didn't tend to be plantation laborers there was some of that initially but it was a lot of personal servants and eunuchs and uh, sex slaves and and it was, so it was a different kind of labor relation. We're, we're, I think we're headed back to the eunuch sex slave uh, slavery in this country. 
perhaps. Um, uh, so, so that's an interesting. So, is there like a single diaspora that crosses both oceans? Uh, even though it's a very fundamental, not not maybe not a very fundamental, but a different kind of labor relation that brought about those two different diasporas. And then people also don't just want to talk about the diaspora; they want to talk about African people in Africa, which is a very fundamental different thing for the, the diaspora. That's people who went through colonialism, but they did not go through chattel slavery. They were not transported from their homelands as chattel. And in, in many cases, their ancestors were the ones who were selling Africans to Europeans as chattel. Sure, but, um, but that removal of millions of people was a fundamental shaper of African history. That's true. Uh, but not in the same way. So there's there's that. And then there's also like a lot of stuff that has shaped the history of black Americans doesn't only and solely come from slavery. I don't think anyone's arguing that it is. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. But I, I think maybe like it's important to to point this out if people are are missing it, that race is not just produced by material conditions. It's continually reproduced. So you can't draw a direct line from the north american experience with slavery which by the way wasn't the same as the experience the caribbean experience of slavery and everything else so there's even that even within the atlantic diaspora uh there's very large differences but even so you can't trace a direct line from the north american conditions of slavery to present day black american political or life or other aspects of life. Even just talking about the diaspora, there's a kind of flattening tendency that I want to resist. It like brings the the past into the present in this way that is so the past has to still be the past. You have to engage with the past in its pastness. You know what I mean? But I think that's exactly where critical race theory is an important tool for modern scholars because we rely on documents and documents and many cultural artifacts that we rely on to make our historical interpretations are very much skewed away from recognizing the importance of race and oppression. Oh, and yeah. mm -hmm. So it is the role of scholars to point that out and to expose and to reflect on what the larger meanings and the hidden meanings of say legal history, of say, uh, if you wanna talk about economics, I mean, the whole history, the, the energy behind the history of capitalism in the last 10 years, 15 years has been largely around trying to establish sort of how central was slavery to the emergence of capitalism. And, you know, reasonable people can disagree uh, on that question, but that wasn't really even part of the central, it wasn't a, a commonly accepted term of debate uh, until very recently. And so these things- We could say with a moral certainty that the first things that were being traded in markets, you know, at its root were not people. I would, I was, you know, somebody probably traded like a pear for a apple or a, something like that. I don't. I, sure. But I, I mean, just exchange is not the same thing as capitalism. It's necessary for capitalism, but it's not the same thing as capitalism. So I would. Oh, here comes the Marxist. Explaining <laughs> well, I, I, no, I don't want to explain it I'm right now, but I, I just I, I think Kyle's point isn't refuted by that. I'm not even trying to refute it. I guess I'm trying to ask the question so you guys can elucidate it. What is the specific argument saying that like capitalism at its core is a was set up to so, the, slavery and whatnot? And I also what, want to ask Kyle. The, um, the point. I also want to ask Kyle 
do you agree with the racial capitalism approach? Um, and if you feel qualified, you can talk about what that is, uh, because I myself, I haven't read too much specifically on racial capitalism. Uh, so if you know, you can uh, elucidate that and you can tell me if you agree with that approach. Yeah. Okay. So Walter Johnson, who is one of the foremost scholars of antebellum slavery, but is also, you know, a little bit of a controversial figure at times. Uh, he talks about in his excellent book, River of Dark Dreams, he says, uh, and he's talking about the fear of slave revolts and sort of the unstable nature of a, an economy built around slave labor. He talks about, thus were the science of political economy, the practicalities of the cotton market, and the exigencies of racial domination entangled with one another, aspects of a single problem, call it slave racial capitalism, as planters and merchants set about trying first to reform themselves and, failing that, to remap the course of world history. In order to survive, slaveholders had to expand. They displaced their fear of their slaves into aggression on a global scale. So that is like the kind of sort of historical argument that I'm sure a historical materialist might uh, take issue with, right? But I think why it is a useful formulation in a sense is, and again, I'm sure there's a, a Marxist materialist rebuke to this idea, but I fundamentally like to think about capitalism as kind of an ethos, an approach to uh, accumulation and exploitation. I think it's, there's pretty solid evidence that the institutions, mechanisms, ethics, and demographic and sort of material reality set in motion by the transatlantic slave trade are sort of fundamentally undergirding the emergence and evolution of modern capitalism as we think about it as a product of the sort of expansion of global colonialism and merit so, trade. So give me the, an example of that in like uh, the stock market, the GameStop thing or something. That's, I don't know. <laughs> that's a great example. So the stock market, as we sort of know it now, especially the American stock market, really emerged as a way of speculating on cotton futures. So you're basically making loans and placing bets based on future cotton that hasn't even been planted yet and may never actually be planted. And that's what starts this process of a larger sort of financialization of American life, of turning from the material object, the goods at the heart of an exchange being something that is real to something that is more abstract and divorced. There's all this sort of economic theory. We don't need to get into it about sort of double commoditization and all this. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, we don't want to get sidelined on that. But the fact is the speculation involved on cotton futures is one of the sort of institutional ancestors of the modern stock market. And similarly, a lot of the land speculation that also is reflective of that sort of ethos to trading and you know dealing in what Polanyi might call sort of fictitious commodities. That also was very much uh, driven by the expansion of slavery. So even if you want to say, oh well, people were already speculating in land. Well, that land, the value of that land was premised on the existence and the promised profits that they would become plantation lands worked by free labor. So the primitive accumulation, if you want to call it, of the American, the burgeoning American empire and these burgeoning European empires over the course of the sort of post-Columbus period that we're broadly discussing here, the reason that it was able to happen and at such an accelerated pace and produce such unprecedented profits and capital accumulation in the history of the world 
was largely due to the guarantee of this exploitable form of labor that undergirded the whole system and was also extremely profitable at every single end from transportation to sale, to resale, to offspring, to the actual goods produced, to the land speculated and backed by the understanding that enslaved people would work the land. So in every single element of the emergence of modern finance, I think it could be argued that slavery was at least very important to the origins of many of the mechanisms and logics associated with how our modern economy works. Right. So, but of course there's been developments in finance since slavery. I, I don't really think you can talk about the financialization of the American economy that's occurred over the, you know, since 1980 <laughs> as being directly traceable back to slavery. Uh, um, and I don't think anybody's saying that explicitly, but it does kind of sound like they're they're flattening that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, but, but then, the other, so yeah. then one, one more thing I want to say is uh, I'm also having trouble, like I didn't really disagree with anything you just said. So I'm trying to find the nub of disagreement here. I, this is this approach, this racial capitalism approach is supposed to be a new thing. In chapter uh, 31 of Capital Volume 1, Marx talks about this stuff. He says, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of blackskins, signalize the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief momenta of primitive accumulation. On their heels treads the commercial war of the European nations with the globe for a theater. It begins with the revolt of the Netherlands from Spain, assumes giant dimensions in England's anti-Jacobin war, and is still going on in the opium wars against China, etc. So would Marx disagree with anything you just said? And if not, then what's the point of talking about this as a novel approach? Yeah, I'm definitely not an expert enough on Marx to say whether he would agree with me, but I would say that one way of thinking about it is Marx's understanding of the importance and influence of slavery on the world economy and global power is filtered through the lens of England being the dominant power in the world, right? Which was the case when he was writing. What black studies and the advance of the history of capitalism in recent generations, I think helps us do is to extend that analysis to the uh, for lack of a better term, you know, sort of like a, the Pax Americana in which we all live in, not that there's a lot of peace in this Pax Americana, but um, this world dominated by the American economy. And so what historians of capitalism are trying to understand is like, why does that happen? We understand, you know, our histori- historians of capitalism have long bickered about, you know, why France and England and Germany are modernizing at certain rates and why Asia is not, or why is Africa underdeveloped, this and that. But recognizing that, you know, especially if you think about, you know, Marx he thinks about like stages of history kind of, right? If we want to understand this stage of history that has been dominated by the American behemoth capitalist, hyper-capitalist, crony capitalist, super capitalism that we actually live in, it's really important to understand how and where that came from. And while you say, you know, yes, you can't uh, point to developments in the last 40 years as being directly uh, the result of uh, history of slavery, that may be true, but what, one of the things that the 1619 Project, you know, some of the things that it's pointing to is that there are contemporary realities that 
are easily explained just by reference to this basic truth about history. For instance, the racial wealth gap, which is a very uh, hot button, trendy thing to talk about, but it's so astronomically blatantly obvious that it is fundamentally the result of everything that has happened since the Civil War and beforehand, that if you're trying to reduce it back to, uh, you know, say the policies uh, since LBJ and how the war on poverty and stuff, you know, affected black uh, household wealth over the 20 years between the 60s and the 80s, you're going to miss the larger context that helps explain the huge racial wealth gap. Couldn't I conceivably do this uh, with anything, though? I mean, I could have fun d with the same structures that we're talking about in, in this interpretation. I could, uh, if I had the gumption to, I could make it the same story. I could just take out racial stuff and black stuff and put in like wanting to fuck my mom or my dick or Freudian uh, interpretation, like at the heart of markets is this kind of thing with men not being able to fuck each other. So they need to have markets in order to interact and touch each other. And then they can compete in some kind completely of completely losing you. Curry. I don't, you're supposed <laughs> no, to be no. on my side. We're supposed to be teaming up against Kyle <laughs> and you're just no, I am. I'm, all I'm, bullshit. I'm being I'm being against he's going to win. No, 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 no. You don't hear you're not hearing my criticism. I'm saying the structure of what you were talking about in terms of connecting capitalism to slavery, you could just take out the subjects and re-implant them. I could replace capitalism. I could replace slavery. Like you, you, it's, no it's, it's jazz. Like it's cool. Like it's cool. It's jazz. It's music. There's a structure there and you can, it doesn't require you playing a trumpet and having a, you know, you could have so, a jazz guitar. You could have. So a, let me yeah. see if I can, I can recapitulate what you're saying. So are you saying if you replayed the tape, and you switch the mad lips yeah black people with white people in the yeah. people who are designated today as black and people who are designated today as white and you switch those people in their in the historical roles that they're actually in so black people were the slave masters and white people were the slaves then you would and you replay the tape so that it's <laughs> it happens the exact way it happened but it's just the races so to speak are isomorphically switched in their positions then you would get the same sort of thing you see today. And so the, if you can do that, then why does race matter? Is that what you were saying, Corey? Yeah, yeah. Or what is so com compelling about the structure of this argument? If we are criticizing these race essentialism, but it doesn't seem like in the argument, at least the one that you presented, Kyle, which I found to be very interesting and astute, but it just occurred to me that there's nothing essential about the racialness of what the art the structure of the argument that you were making does that make sense it, it sort of makes sense but the thing is you can make any number of arguments about how to view history or whatever but it won't stand up to the scrutiny of the historical record and what i'm saying is all of many in my opinion and in the opinion of many historians and scholars of various stripes and various disciplines there's clear and convincing evidence of the centrality of race in all of these uh historical phenomenon and what i am find actually disappointing is the effort to find some sort of counter narrative that complicates that simply for the sake of thinking that, you know, th this would be somehow owning the woke mafia by uh, saying, well, it's not all about race. Well, it's, you know, we can have a more, uh, you know, you could just throw any argument out there. And, and you but that, isn't that the inter isn't that the intersectionalist argument uh, at its no, core? No, it's not. No, it's not. Like to, the intersectionalist argument is wouldn't the wouldn't the wouldn't the feminists say that the slavery thing is overdone or what? Like, shouldn't you know they would be? That's why I'm saying the structure of it, and you can input 
and outputs can change, but you can, but only certain only certain interpretations and certain arguments are going to be able to hold up to scrutiny. That's what I'm saying. You yeah. can definitely make an argument ar around patriarchy as the driving force in American history. It's been done and very admirably, and it provides important, crucial insights. That doesn't mean it's the only way to look at American history. So then if it's multiple things, then it can't be only one thing, right? No, but there can be some things that are more important than others. So you can say a central driver yeah. of American history uh, is the Jewish diaspora in America, struggling to find its place and establish itself economically and culturally. That's true, but it's not the central driver of American history, but you can mm. much more easily make a convincing case that black struggle and the legacy and history of slavery. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. And I think this is another reason why people are bristle at the idea that emphasizing black history is some, you know, they think that that's somehow going to like overwrite every other storyline in American history. Mm -hmm. But it's that, this fundamental original sin, if you want to call it that, but also fundamental underlying material structure of our economy and our political life has shaped every single aspect of American political and economic development. I yeah. think at least for the first, you know, 200 years of American history, you can, or 150 years. I mean, you can, you know, people can quibble about, you know, how much does this analysis sort of hold up to the fundamentally rejiggered world after World War One and World War Two, And, you know, I, I, I accept that people can quibble with that. But if we're talking about we're talking about how to tell the, the story of early America. Right. And the foundation mm. of the American system and how that sort of has shaped our present reality. Mm. I think there is a very troubling tendency. Like here's how it's put in uh, the Atlantic piece. They said, you know, Americans need to believe that, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of history bends towards justice. And they are rarely mm. kind to those who question whether it does. And I think that is one of the things that I think is, is driving this idea is like a lot of Americans, both at the sort of more mainstream liberals, like we want to think America isn't that bad. And from the leftists who want to believe, you know, because Matt was saying in the last podcast that you don't want to lapse into Afro-pessimism, as he called it. Uh, or I know it's like an acknowledged term in scholarship, but I thought it was used it a little derisively for my taste. Um, <laughs> If you want to say that that's the problem, we don't want to have this darker vision of America not making progress, but rather taking steps back every time we take steps forward. I think that emphasizing the negative downsides of a race conscious historical mm -hmm. approach that acknowledges the centrality of slavery and the centrality of race, like explicitly and directly, I think that aversion to it is one of the reasons we have a problem in this country with a national mythology that is able to be mobilized by people like Stephen Miller and the 1776 Unites crowd because mm. they don't want to believe the truth about American history. And maybe you guys are, you know, at the level of education and sophistication where you can take what you believe and, you know, accept from the Black Studies approach and uh, also grounded in a more universalist uh, theory of class struggle or Marxism or something. But for the vast majority of the American population, like the way that they understand American political history is through a pretty like narrow and nationalistic and white focused political history and scholarly tradition. And so to center and foreground black voices in this conversation and interpretations that uh, center black ideas and black agency throughout history, it's a welcome corrective. And it, in my opinion, clarifies and broadens historical understanding rather than reducing or flattening. 
Well, if we accept that there's, I mean, you just said like, we have our own view and it's not the same. You've never said at any point in this that we have the same view as the 1776 project or the even the popular understanding. Uh, so given that, given that we have a distinct view that we disagree with a lot of what's said in the scholarship that you're talking about, and we disagree with the popular conception, why should we fight the popular conception with stuff we disagree with rather than stuff we agree with? Yeah, aren't we so talking about like tailoring it to the an audience in some ways? And I don't think that intersectional black studies or whatever is going to work for those Trump people ever. So uh, just even on the level of just tactics, why would we force them to eat their vegetables and remind them, you know, these poor white people who are Trump voters now are not the ones who are benefiting from the wealth of that slavery created. And that's an important thing for people to remember. They were, were probably indirectly benefited on some level about slavery, but they weren't the ones getting, and their ancestors weren't the ones getting the vast share of the wealth. Isn't there an argument to be made about, you know, you need to have, mul- like we're talking about, multiple realities functioning at the same time. The 1776 crowd needs to be thought of as one that you should be trying to make arguments to, to in order to bring all of us together in the future, because obviously they're a powerful bloating block and what, whatnot. So an intersectional stuff is clearly not going to do it for them. So isn't there a conversation that should be had? What Wouldn't that be an interesting conversation for people in Black Studies, intersectionality, whatever, you know, our version of like, woke mafia, whatever professors, shouldn't they be talking about how to cleave and undo this voting block in this coalition and like what kind of approach would work for them in a way that doesn't make them feel attacked? And I, the only answer that I can ever come up with is one that is a class first, but not class only approach. You know, like class first doesn't mean class only. Sure. And I think what you're describing is what's often, you know, derisively referred to in Uh, history circles as sort of the search for a usable past, right? You shouldn't be tailoring your scholarship necessarily, or some people do believe you should, some people believe you shouldn't, towards whether or not it can be used in the political present, right? There's a great recent example that exposes both the potential and the pitfalls of this kind of attempt to engage with the public in a more sophisticated and nuanced conversation about this, which let's think back to earlier in 2020, when there was these so-called racial reckoning uh, after the uh, killing of George Floyd. And there was definitely a sense, especially among a lot of academics of like, y'all are late to the party, right? Like people have been exposing this system of oppression that is, you know, embodied in our police forces, but reflects all these other underlying structural inequalities in American life. But the fact that this conversation became really present in the public discourse I think it did move the field position in public discussion around a lot of these things. And it provoked people into thinking more critically about things that they've accepted or maybe didn't even know that they had accepted and to start thinking more critically. And that's what the whole idea of critical race theory is, right? It's not- And it created a lot of obnoxious, self-serving Instagram posts, but- (laughs) Yeah, well, that's where I was going with it with the pitfalls, which is that I think you're right that a lot of that does turn off a lot of people and for good reason in some cases, but also for bad reasons. And you can say that you don't think but, it's the most politically effective. But also, if it turns, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day why it turns people off. If it turns people off for bad reasons, it turns people off. You're right. But what I would say is it also turned a lot of people on. It also turned a lot of people on. And that's important. And if you want to say woke shaming and having an honest conversation about the legacies of imperialism and colonialism and slavery and native genocide is going to turn off right wing nationalists, 
yeah, you're right. And I, I think well, that's a problem. I feel like you have to use nationalism if you're going to, especially if you want to run for president or be a part of politics, you have to, you have to like steal it, steal the mantle. Like, I don't see how you get around that. You can't fundamentally be like this whole thing that you're a part of when you vote is bad. And good. the internal logic doesn't even line up with itself. Even if you're fucking lying, if you want to get some power in this country, you need to use the tenets of fucking nationalism, you know, and, but it, you know, and critical race theory is a good campaign strategy. I don't think it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying if we're talking about how we as academics, public facing intellectuals, podcast hosts, people in our everyday interactions with normal human beings. I the think, sphere of power that we actually are in, which is a very yes, small little farm. <laughs> yes, I think there is real value in pushing the conversation in the right direction in, on, on these issues and being just upfront and honest about them rather than cloaking them in veils of intellectual quibbles that actually distort the, the bigger picture, you know? And sort of when you want to argue about like how central should we make race, you don't want it to fall out of view. And that's what often happens on the left. And that's one of the reasons I think the American left has had a little bit of trouble appealing to voters. You're, you're, you're right. Talking yeah. About. yeah. In regards to uh, sentiment and approach and, and yeah, you're definitely right. Did you just say that that's why the American left has had trouble appealing to voters of color? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, that's the central things that happened in this last election was that voters of color swung toward Trump, not necessarily black voters, but although a little bit black voters, you know, as we talked about on the show before, that's another example of this kind of race reductionist approach that says that the reason why that there's this block of people called voters of color and the left or anybody else is having problems with these voters of color for these specific reasons. That's another example, I think, of the reductionist approach that I'm objecting to. But I, I did want to ask. He's talking how, about how much, the American, the left left. Like yeah, I know. I know. Thing. Even that. Right. I mean, like, uh, but but I do want to ask, how much time do you have, Kyle? Because uh, there's a lot I want to talk about. But um, and we can we could even make this into a two part because this is very interesting. But I don't think fundamentally that the Bernie Sanders campaign didn't do well with black people in either of its its campaigns because of the kind of stuff you're talking about. And it did do quite well with uh, Hispanic and, and also Asian people in, in the second time around. So I disagree with some of the premise that the American left isn't doing well with voters of color across the board. And I disagree with the reasons why they're not doing well when that can be said to be true. And I kind of disagree with the entire notion of a block of voters called voters of color. Yeah, I feel you. I also quibble with all of those definitions and don't really buy it. That wasn't really what I was trying to say. What I meant to say is the imperatives of people who are seeking political office and to shape political movements are different than the work of academics and scholars and historians. And the importance of stimulating a larger cultural shift in the way that the public perceives issues around class and economic structures and all these things that Marxists would really want people to be focused on, that is what I think historians are trying to add complexity and nuance to those conversations that have a longer view of the origins of the problems and the crises. And so that to me, it's, it's about affecting a larger, like, you know, the word I keep coming back to, right, is paradigm shift. We want to be able to have these conversations on different terms. So we're not arguing between Joe Biden and Cory Booker 
vision of American politics and identity politics and, and so forth. But we're like more on the like between like, you know, I don't know, Bernie Sanders and someone else you guys like. <laughs> but uh, uh, Kid Rock or Kid Rock. Exactly. <laughs> uh, guy from Def Leppard. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I think that I think both things can be true. We can say that part of the success of the Bernie Sanders movement was that he didn't explicitly hearken upon uh, a lot of critical race theory stuff in his first campaign and part of his failures in the 2020 campaign were maybe that he leaned too much into that or for certain voters, they didn't connect with his way of expressing these or whatever it is. But I think fundamentally it had a lot more to do with a lot bigger sort of just a, a general centrism in sort of American vision of American prosperity and um, the teleology of American progress. And what critical race theory and historians more broadly want to draw attention to is you know, it's often one step forward, two steps back, especially for black people, especially for non-white individuals throughout American history. And that incorporating that into our understanding of the present is absolutely fundamental if we want uh, people to shift their minds about what kind of government is gonna be good for them, what kind of policies. This is how we move towards socialism is by emphasizing the ways it will reduce inequality that has been formed by capitalism, you know? How do you do that by uh, mobilizing people to think of their concerns and their identity in this country and their stake in the, this country and its future and its past in strictly a way that makes them forget sometimes in the ways that they are connected to poor white people. Or well, this yeah, is I mean, exactly. I mean, this is like uh, the only thing I do on the show is quote Adolf Reed, who is black, by the way. Um, <laughs> so uh, he's he's automatically right about everything. Therefore, um, he. He said, uh, he walked, he walked in, he said, I mean, one of his quotes is, uh, you can't, um, get, can't you can't form solidarity, you want, but sometimes you, you get what you need. You can't form, you can't form solidarity by starting a meeting by asking everybody to go around and talk about how they're different from everybody else at the meeting. That's not how you get solidarity, uh, off the ground. So I think that kind of echoes what Corey was saying. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and there's a lot of scholarship sort of about, you know, solidarity is a difficult historical reality to achieve. And it's often at cross purposes with individual community needs. That isn't to say that it isn't something that we should strive for and want, but, you know, it, it's complicated. But I guess what I would say is to, sort of, to, to Corey's point is it's, it's not just something that we want. It's it's something that's necessary. You can't do anything without solidarity. Like, of course, solidarity has downsides, too. But I mean. Well, you can do some uh, things. You can get major civil rights legislation passed, you know, like without solidarity. You think that the well, depending on your definition of solidarity, you know, there's a lot of scholarship about how these efforts in like the 40s and 50s to try to unite the black and Latino movements, for, for instance, they were often operating at cross purposes and they had different strategic imperatives and therefore collaboration wasn't always mutually beneficial and it wasn't always welcomed. And so, yes, in theory, all oppressed working people should unite in some glorious socialist uh, revolution, but that's just not really how it the, worked. The March on Washington in 1963 was organized by socialists and labor organizers. Uh, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, uh, both of whom were later harshly criticized, I think in some ways justly so, for becoming kind of class reductionists, especially Rustin. But they, they were crucial to like, you can't tell the story of the 63 Civil March on Washington for jobs and justice, by the way, that's what it was called. The first word in there was jobs without talking about labor organizers, socialist organizers, people people who knew how to organize a picket line. 
like people who had actual i'm not even talking about ideology just like knowledge about how to get a massive number of people together that was without the labor movement none of that would would have existed rosa parks was trained at a school that was set up by the the cio to for um people have this idea that she was just like this spontaneous person who was uh asked to sit at the back of the bus she was she was an organizer she was an activist she was an agitator um and the labor movement trained her she was deliberately picking a fight with jim crow yeah that's a perfect example you like the civil rights act of 1964 the voting rights act that stuff would not have passed without solidarity and the labor movement sure but can you see why the urge to emphasize those exceptional instances of cross-class or cross-racial solidarity undermines the larger historical reality, which is that more often than not, a lot of the organizing, a lot of the activism has been not cross-racial, has not been conducted in a spirit of solidarity, has in fact been organically and or professionally organized by black organizers just as often as it has been by white labor leaders. There is a tendency, I think, to highlight, and this is again what some of the- uh, well, the, 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 I, the two people I mentioned were Rustin and Randolph, both of whom were black. So, so this is again, something I'm talking about, like black workers are, sometimes they're operating in a capacity of being specifically fighting for black civil and political and social equality. And other times, they're doing things as part of their class and sometimes they're doing both at the same time so i didn't actually deny that black labor organizers were involved in this in fact the two people the only two people i mentioned were black but matt if they weren't using the language of civil rights and black freedom in addition to labor and solidarity would they have achieved the legislative and judicial victories that they did the language of rights and civil rights activism, which many scholars have argued was counterproductive to the larger struggles of workers. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree, but in specific instances, in terms of getting the Civil Rights Act passed, in, in terms of getting the Voting Rights Act passed, in terms of getting Brown v. Board repealed, the appeals to racial interests were absolutely fundamental. Now, reasonable people, I mean, I don't really wanna to go too far down this road because it's like, there's so much scholarship and debate around this stuff. It, it, it's not like I have a monolithic view that like race is a better political organizing tool. I actually think it's not. I, I really don't. Just sort of, if I can just quickly go back to what, what Corey was saying is like, if people glom onto this racial explanations of why they are immiserated or whatever, why, why they have inequality in modern life, why they don't have access to, to the same economic opportunities as people of different races or whatever. Well, I guess my thing is if you don't stress the reality of racial inequality that undergirds and is statistically proven to undergird all of those present economic realities or many of them, you get left with the explanations of the free market, right? That it's other factors that have much more to do with sort of abstract notions of hard work and meritocracy that have been seductive and generally accepted by the vast majority of American citizens who buy into this uh, prosperity gospel of capitalism. Yeah. Whereas Inserting the racial- Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Bullshit. Right. Yeah. Inserting an analysis of economic history and contemporary reality that acknowledges the centrality of race gives people a much clearer picture of why things are the way they are, why you can't go and get a job, why you can't get the same loan from a bank, why you don't have the family wealth that other people do, statistically speaking, whether or not there are plenty of poor white people who don't have wealth as well. 
you know? Uh, yeah. I'm, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, tactically, it's probably a better way of getting people interested in this stuff at all because it has something to do with themselves. It kind of appeals to that. Easier to identify yourself as a part of that thing because it's literally what you look like. But as if that's the on-ramp, then it still needs to be coupled with. I'm not saying then they get on the on-ramp and then you say, okay, now that you're woke or whatever, now you really need to get woke and just only think about class. I'm just saying, as long as those things are together and they meet together when you get on the ramp. For some people, maybe That's the proportion, some some people, the what? That's why it's called intersectional. Yeah. It's not saying critical race theory alone. It's saying class analysis, racial analysis, gender analysis, all at once must be present for a realistic and nuanced interpretation of anything. And I agree with that. <laughs>